On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show. And we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week. Please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And for those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you. From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground, with members of the African People's Socialist Party indicted for exercising freedom of speech, Cop City protesters charged with domestic terrorism, and bail fund organizers arrested by a military-style SWAT team, human rights advocates held a recent gathering to understand this targeting of activists as the most recent iteration of the notorious FBI COINTELPRO program that worked to destroy 1960s freedom movements. It has historically been used as a tool to go after anti-war and human rights organizations. For this hour, we'll hear voices from part one of the virtual program held June 8, 2023, by the project Expose COINTELPRO. That was a clear objective to break our movement off from those around the world who would support us and make us think that the only way that we can struggle is within the United States Constitution. And of course, another objective was to destroy the leadership of the Black Liberation Movement, Indigenous Peoples Movements, the Chicano Movements, and create disruptions within their organizations. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, the June 2023 teaching by the Project Exposed COINTELPRO begins with the moderator, Shafia Mbalia, after a brief clip from the documentary COINTELPRO 101. Back in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s, the United States government had programs, some involving simple surveillance, some involving ways of getting information, some involving plots, basically to frame people for crimes, and some involving outright murder. It was secret at the time because it was by and large illegal. Really what COINTELPRO is, is you know, a militarization of uh, criminal justice. It was a cold word that was used by the FBI, actual war against the entire left movement. To eliminate, intimidate, incarcerate, and terrorize a people. It was a covert war strategy, and it was done because the government thought there was a war going on.
Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome, free to land. Uhuru, greetings. My name is Shafia Mbalia. I am with the Exposed COINTELPRO Coalition and beyond. And welcome to our program tonight on the latest tool being used against movements for justice and power, the Foreign Agents Registration Act. We will be presenting not just the background on the FARA Act, but also connections around what it has to do with the Generations Old COINTELPRO or FBI Counterintelligence Program, as well as a presentation from the African People's Socialist Party, of which that law founded in 1934, excuse me, 38, was used against this past year. And then finally, we have a extra treat that we did not advertise, and that is a presentation around Cop City. We thought that this program was especially important because we are in the throes of fight back where movements for justice, for power, are galvanizing across the United States. Along with that, those movements against police terrorism, domestic terrorism, gentrification, all manner of attacks, both dealing with the electoral system, all kinds of attacks across the board. Uh, there is also a rising, what we would call extra legal rise of fascism, fascist and right-wing groups, not only in the United States, but across the world, particularly in Europe. And we thought that it was especially important, and we want to thank uh, Azadeh Shashahani and her co-author for the excellent article that gave everyone the heads up about this Foreign Agents Registration Act. We thought it was quite important that we do an educational for ourselves and for all of our movements about what it is that we are facing, not because we are want to scare folks, intimidate folks, because we think that that is what the state is trying to do. But what we want to do is arm ourselves. We want to arm ourselves so we can develop strategies, uh, develop goals, methods of working together and getting around these. International solidarity is of a critical importance to all of our movements. And it is a critical responsibility of our movements in linking up with those in the rest of the world. And there are many activists who are doing solidarity work around Palestine and, pal and solidarity work around Cuba and Venezuela and trying to get the real story out. And so it is critically important that we are able as movements to continue that work. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce the first two speakers for this evening. Sister Rukaya Ali is a member of Justice for All organization. It's one of the founding organizations of Exposed COINTELPRO and Beyond the Coalition, and she is one of our national co-conveners. And she'll be pointing out and, and putting all the connections, not only about what our coalition has been doing, but also the connections of what does it have to do with the Foreign Agents Registration Act, the latest FBI programs around Black identity extremists, etc. Immediately following Rukaya is uh, Julie Shevalker. Julie Shevalker is a legal fellow at Project South based in Atlanta. 
Her fellowship focuses on state surveillance of Muslim, immigrant, and Black communities. She was born in Mumbai, India. Julie grew up in Iowa, North Carolina, and Georgia. She earned a BA from Wake Forest University and recently graduated from New York University School of Law, where she was a Root Tilden Kern Scholar. We wish to welcome both. And all of our speakers for today will have about 10 minutes. We'll have some breaks and culture in between. And then we will be opening up for a discussion uh, amongst our, our guests and, and all of us. So any questions and comments, feel free to put them in the chat. And we thank you. You could be somewhere else. We thank you for joining us. And without further ado, Sister Rukaya Ali. Thank you, Shafia. And assalamu alaikum to everyone. I My think I'm unmuted. I'm unmuted, yes. And I want to start in the name of Allah, bismillah, and welcome everyone. And I just want to share some of the background of our group. And we are a group of activists who organized in the fall of 2021 after many years of fighting for the freedom of Imam, uh, Imam Jamil Abdullah. And so we were active in the protest, calling for his freedom, also the freedom of Sister uh, Dr. Afia Siddiqui. And after attending a rally in Washington, D.C. with Maurice Halakan, who is very fervent about Afia Siddiqui, as everyone knows, we decided to organize around H.R. 2998. And so, and I saw HR 2998 as an, another opportunity to work for the freedom of our unjustly incarcerated, as we had tried so many angles. Uh, Congressman Bobby Rush had introduced the bill in May 2021, and the opportunity to lay bare the government's tactics to silence voices that demanded fairness and equity for all people and to redress the wrongs done to families and individuals. It just seemed like just a ripe opportunity, especially the black and brown people who have been used to build wealth and entitlement for certain classes of this society. We know many marriages, many married couples, many children who are orphaned by COINTELPRO, by the treatment needed out to their mothers, their fathers, you know, children, grow up, boys growing up orphans without a father in the home, women with no husbands. And so I saw HR 2998 as an opportunity to redress this. Bobby Rush had introduced this bill, and by that time, it had probably about 24 co-sponsors. We haven't seen the number of co-sponsors grow since that time. Um, so we were talking about how COINTELPRO began, um, when we, everybody knows J. Edgar Hoover. You know, he had, was the mastermind of various tactics since the 1930s. And he didn't see the people of this country you know, were pressing for movement in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even starting in the 50s. And he didn't see the people as calling for justice and equity. He saw them people who, as people who were disrupting the social order. And we can even go back into the 1920s with the movement of Marcus Garvey and saw how the United States government plotted against him. You know, insiders and enemies of Marcus Garvey you know, tipped the government off that Marcus Garvey was selling stocks through the mail to fund the movement. And so they were accusing him of mail fraud because he tried to sell these stocks. And that is, you know, mirrored to, again today in, you know, activist funds, funds and bail funds that people are organizing to free people who are arrested at the demonstrations. Now they're raiding those funds and telling them they're defrauding people and misusing funds. So this, we see the same tactics repeated. That's the important thing to see about COINTELPRO and now the new movement against Black identity extremists. So Marcus Garvey was eventually deported from the U.S., so, again, 
This relates to the present day tactic of blocking organizations to create bail funds. In addition to that, we're talking about um, the, other, the other tactic was, you know, dividing people and destroying movements, going into movements, creating division among people and such. And we find that that's still going on. You know, there's an account of the, um, now they're being called the alphabet boys, you know, the alphabet boys, and they go into all kinds of organizations, all kinds of demonstrations. They were particularly seen after the George Floyd demonstrations, you know, going into communities and imposing as activists, but really trying to stir up trouble and disrupt people. So there we see that again happening again. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that they consider people who are calling for justice as people wanting to disrupt the, the social order of the society, rather than people who have legitimate causes is, is something that, you know, right again, anybody can see is incorrect because every human being values justice. Every human being values justice. And how is that? Because I mean, if we look at our physical bodies, our bodies are balanced. That's a sign of the justice that God created. You know, the fact that we're balanced, that, that we, we don't feel right if we're not balanced, balanced, we're not centered. And that justice that we feel in our own physical being, we want for the rest of society. And we see calling for justice as, you know, as a divine call. It's not just some political movement that you fall into. It's a divine call to call people up and wake people up and try to at least begin to establish the kingdom of justice on earth that we've been promised in the future. So in addition, so HR 2998 at this time is like, like Bobby Rush retired from Congress. And so now Corey Bush, a Congresswoman from Missouri has said that she would take that ball up again. We still haven't seen much happening, but we're in the process of looking over the bill, seeing what changes need to be made and how we can go forward with it. But at the same time, realizing the political climate of the Congress, we've also decided to start an educational program where we will be available to go into schools and colleges and just educate the younger generations, educate the general public about this bill and about these movements that are happening. As far as Farah is concerned, Federal Agents Registration Act, you know, we see that again in so many, in, in with um, APSP and with so many movements where the United States government will say, well, now you're, you're, you know, you're sending money and funds overseas to foreign governments, you're sending money to Iraq, or, and some people are just really paying their religious dues. You know, they may have to pay it to a scholar in Iraq or some other country, but now you, it can be said that you're funding terrorism. So all those types of things are things that we need to keep in mind. And again, one of the purposes of this webinar is to inform our people about SARA and how it can be used against you. So in addition to the education initiative, we're calling you, all of you, please join us in this coalition. Join us in this educational coalition so that we can spread the word and help people to understand these tactics that we can organize and perhaps help Corey Bush to push this bill forward. There's so much that we can do together. Um, I want to invite you to join the coalition because one thing that we have to remember that even though COINTELPRO was, you know, in, in, used many years ago, it still has new reiteration. And so, you know, these movements never go away. And, we, and as we all see, if we want justice in this society, we know that justice has never been given in this society without a fight. Everything that the people have gained, they've had to fight for it. I talked to some people who remember their mothers in the 1930s going to Washington, D.C. to demonstrate for Social Security. You know, now today people take that for granted and think that, you know, they're entitled to it. But people had to fight for that. Everything that people have gained in this country in terms of rights and equity has had to be fought for. So, again, let's join this battle together. Let's, let's work together. Let's organize and make strong a stronger force. 
Thank you so much. And I'll be able to answer questions at the end. Right. Thank you, Rikaya. Uh, appreciate that timely presentation. You are listening to part one of a recent program held by the Project Exposed COINTELPRO, exploring how FARA, the so-called Foreign Agent Registration Act, is used to target movements for justice and power. This is On the Ground. Now back to the program. Now we're going to shift over to Julie Shavalka. Welcome, Julie. Hi, everyone. First, thank you so much to Shafia and all the organizers for hosting this webinar. I'm Julie, a legal fellow at Projects South. And just as a little bit of a roadmap, I will be talking a little bit about FARO, what it does and its history before turning to how it has been weaponized against movements. So FARA is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, a U.S. law that was enacted in 1938. Under FARA, certain individuals and organizations who act on behalf of a foreign principal to do a variety of, thing, a variety of things, including influence U.S. policy or public opinion, must register as foreign agents with the Department of Justice and the Attorney General, and there are additional rep reporting requirements. So FARA is incredibly broad. It covers a broad range of actors. It applies equally to anyone who is determined to be an agent or acting on behalf of a foreign government, but also foreign people or entities, including nonprofits like Amnesty International. So this includes a really broad range from corporations to foundations to media organizations to even just people who are based out of the United States. Additionally, covered activities under FARA are fairly broad. That includes things like engaging in political activities, distributing things of value, acting as a publicity agent. Political activities includes not just lobbying U.S. government officials, but arguably it covers you know, almost any advocacy efforts that engage with the public. And since it is so broad, it can be triggered by even slight activity that meets any of the statutory triggers. It can apply if someone in the United States acts at the mere request of a foreign principal. For example, if a Canadian nonprofit requests that a U.S.-based nonprofit set up certain meetings, then that could potentially fall within the scope of FARA. It can apply to hosting conferences, distributing reports, requesting meetings, reaching out to opinion leaders on behalf of foreign principals. And so there is a lot that potentially falls under this huge umbrella. And while there are some exemptions, those are still very ambiguous. So, for example, there are exemptions for you know, diplomacy. There's a commerce exemption. There's exemptions which theoretically should apply to nonprofits, but don't, for example, for religious, scholastic, academic or scientific pursuits or for fine arts. But those have been interpreted by the Justice Department to not apply to people who are engaged in political activity, which, again, is defined very broadly. And then there is a huge exemption for just other activities not serving predominantly a foreign interest. But it's not clear what that means, what activities are other or know how we're defining a foreign interest and there are multiple readings. So basically there's a lot of things that people could do that could potentially fall under FARA and the required 
requirements under it are also extensive. For example, agents have to provide a long list of information, including home addresses of officers and directors and organizations bylaws and what activities they will be doing for the foreign agent or for the foreign principal, excuse me. And those registration materials are then publicly available on the Justice Department's website. So it's a lot of information that folks are required to put out there. And then additionally, organizations registered under FARA must make clear and conspicuous statements on any informational material that they distribute that they are determined you know, to be in the interest of a foreign entity, just clarifying that this is distributed on behalf of a foreign entity. This leads to a lot of problems because people might see that and say, oh, this is actually distributed by you know, this government or this other entity, not this organization, when that's not true. It's just the reporting requirement. And then failure to register also leads to heavy sentences. There is a punishment of up to $10,000 or five years in jail. And while the Justice Department is, only the, is the only entity that technically has the power to prosecute violations of FARA, Congress does have the power to conduct investigations, which leads to increased risk of politicized enforcement. So just really quick, a little bit about the history FARA emerged in the 1930s when the U.S. was getting ready for World War II. In 1934, there were a lot of concerns about foreign propaganda and communist influence. So the House of Representatives convened the Special Committee on Un-American Affairs. That, was, that is the same committee that later in 1945 would be affiliated with McCarthyism. The committee ultimately released a report in 1935 that found evidence people in the U.S. were spreading fascist and communist propaganda on behalf of foreign governments and political parties, which led the committee to issue recommendations to Congress to require representatives to register publicly. And shortly after that, the FARA legislation was introduced in Congress, and then it was signed into law in 1938 by President Roosevelt. Now, FARA isn't something that's commonly discussed. It doesn't come up all the time. It's not something most people are familiar with, but it's becoming increasingly more important now especially since 2016. So between 1966 and 2016, there were a total of seven criminal prosecutions under FARA, but in 2018 alone, there were 20. So FARA prosecutions and investigations have significantly increased in the past few years, which is concerning, especially because there's also been an uptick in audits by the Department of Justice or you know, agents who are already registered under FARA. There have also been staffing changes that people have noticed within the FARA unit at the Department of Justice and more aggressive interpretations of the statute in, in advisory opinions. So this increases the risk that FARA poses to movements because it has historically been used as a tool to go after anti-war and human rights organizations. Initially, during the 1930s and 40s, FARA was used to justify government interception of publications sent to the U.S. from foreign countries. And this ended up leading to the destruction and interception of things like Russian novels, scientific journals, and even copies of The Economist, which is a London-based newspaper, because it was critical of U.S. government policy. Many of you know W.E.B. Du Bois was connected to many international social movements. He was also prosecuted for failure to register under FARA in 1951, when the Peace Information Center, an organization that he started with several other activists, reprinted and circulated the Stockholm Appeal, which called for a ban on nuclear weapons. The Justice Department saw it as a threat to national security and claimed that the organization needed to register under FARA. The organization, of course, pushed back and ultimately disbanded to avoid registration. And yet the Justice Department still pursued prosecutions against the founders. So while the case was dismissed by a judge, ultimately, the costs were substantial, both financially, it required 
massive fundraising efforts, but also in terms of reputation. So FAR clearly has been used since its inception to silence speech and to chill participation in certain activities that the government deems to be a threat to national security for various reasons. More recently, there have been politically motivated investigations led by Congress under FARA. In 2018, the Republican-controlled House Committee on Natural Resources um, initiated FARA investigations into four U.S. environmental groups, including the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, claiming that there were potential foreign agents based on criticisms of U.S. environmental policy. The committee chairman sent letters to the groups, which heavily implied that groups that were critical of the U.S. government were deemed suspicious. The primary piece of evidence against the NRDC, for example, was that it was more critical of the U.S.'s environmental policy than China's. And although there was no formal charge, these organizations still had to work and expend resources to defend themselves from the charge of being a foreign agent. So even beyond investigations and prosecutions, there is also political motivation clearly behind the organizations which are required or which are asked to register under FARA. For example, critics have pointed out that the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee and its precursor organization, the American Zionist Council, were not required by the Justice Department to register, while the Kashmiri American Council, for example, was criminally prosecuted for failing to register under the act. Similarly, in 2017, certain Russian-based media organizations, including RTTV America and Sputnik, were again required to register, while other similar organizations from other countries were not. And this is a problem because registration also carries risks and has negative secondary effects. For example, the Palestine Information Office was forced to register as an agent of the Palestinian Liberation Organization under Farah. Palestinian Information Office was forced to register as an agent of the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And then that later gave the State Department a basis for shutting it down in 1987 because of U.S. concerns over terrorism. And if it had not been required to register, then that would have never happened. Similarly, RTTV America's Capitol Hill press credentials were revoked after it registered. And Sputnik, which was also required to register, then some of its business associates associates were required to register, which led to additional hurdles and problems, which other similar media organizations were not required to face. Overall, it's clear that FARA has been historically used for politically motivated targeting, And as it's used more frequently over the past few years, currently, and unfortunately, likely in the future, there is no doubt that it will continue to be used in a similar manner. So that was a brief overview of FARA and some of its risks. I know that was a lot of information. And if anybody has any questions, I believe there's a Q&A at the end. So I'll be happy to answer them then. Um, Thank you all so much. Thank you, Julie. Next, we've got uh, a little treat for you. We got, uh, I hope our tech folks are, here we go. We've got some some art for you. Check this out. Mother, I don't want a fancy funeral. I don't want a coffin made of stained oak wood so glossy you can see your own tears. I don't want a soft lining that my skin won't feel. I don't want your sobs to echo in an open sanctuary as their God's stained glass smile beams down, no. And Father, I don't want to wear a suit. Bury me in the shirt he shot me in. The plain white tee that Mr. Officer will so kindly turn into a Yeezy shirt. See, it's poetic that I will die in clothes I couldn't afford to live in and, and make sure you put my hands up. 
so the ministers can see what bullets crucified me as I tried to swat them away like mosquitoes that don't drink the blood they draw from my skin. And, and please, don't let Black Lives Matter come to my funeral. Because where Black Lives Matter goes, all lives matter follows, and I don't want you to have to explain to my sister why people are protesting my funeral. People who are so quick to say all lives matter, but they don't care about the refugees that bomb with drones or the small Asian children that build our phones or the migrant workers that toil in our soil or the Native Americans losing their land over oil, but they, they scream blue lives matter. Like, 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 like blue lives don't murder. Like, 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 like blue lives exist. Like, like they can't take off their uniform. Like, like, like I can take off my skin. Like, how do you tell me I don't matter? Like, all I want to say is that they don't really care about us. And speaking of Michael Jackson, please, sing no hymnals at my funeral. Only old Negro spirituals that our old Negro spirits will recognize and harmonize with. I want you to lead me to them. Lift every voice and sing me by and by the listening skies and stormy seas. Please take me to the king and leave me there. Do not put me on a t-shirt. I have no wish to be a fashion statement. Hold no marches in my name. I have no wish for them to step on it. Do not complain to social media. I have no wish to be a hashtag. Just, just don't learn who I am. I give no poet permission to pervert my name for points at poetry slams. And do not let them tell you I had a gun. God forbid they catch us with one because the first one to fight for his right to bear arms is the last one to fight for mine. And the same one to hear I had a weapon and, and think I deserved it. And then they'll give him paid leave as a salute to his service. See, they want us to know that they think that we're worthless. So if they pull up behind your ride, it's okay to be nervous. Just don't run. Police started a slave catcher so you won't get far. And these days they pump rounds into cars like the tank is empty. So just sit back. Relax. Update your profile while he's profiling you. Text your family back while he calls back up. Remember man is rehearsed on church Sundays, please. And thank you. Yes, ma'am. No mask, sir. Make no mistake. Your manners might not change your fate, but at least you'll die in your Sunday best because they kill people. Real people. And mama, I don't want to be next. Brother Hassan Bird. Hassan Bird is a poet, writer, performer, organizer, activist in North Carolina. He hosts events, coordinates them, and facilitates meetings and other kinds of gatherings. And just... We also have in BWFJ, Black Workers for Justice, we have a little bit of pride because he's one of our own, because he's one of our youngins. In that last segment from the Expose COINTELPRO program, you heard from the poet Hassan Bird and attorney Julie Shavalkar. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us for the final part, which includes an appeal to support the movement opposing a training center for militarized policing. As uh, Sister Rukaya has mentioned, uh, this program is sponsored by the Exposed COINTELPRO and Beyond Coalition. It is a coalition of activist organizations. We encourage organizations to be a part. She has already told you we do speaking engagements. We do it uh, at the schools. We do alternative media presentations. Uh, we present webinars such as we have this evening. We have a legislative committee that is meeting with Corey Bush's office. Not that we have any faith 
and that Congress is going to do anything, but we think that this is the educational tool so that those folks who are not clear about where we stand in America, that this will help. For more information, we want to also remind you that counterintelligence program of the FBI had several clear objectives. And there are objectives that we want uh, to remind ourselves first about because we are still paying the price here in 2023 of Cohen and One of its main objectives, of course, was to alienate the youth from the movement. And so that you got youth now who ask us, why didn't you all fight back? And we have to tell them that we have our Mandela's. We have our brothers and sisters who have been in jail more than many of us are alive. And we are all fighting for their freedom. We also celebrate the, the, the releases of folks like Sundiata Akoli and Mutulu Shakur, Brother Maroon Russell Schultz, Brother Jalil Muntakin. So there are some victories that come from the fights. And I can't, don't have time enough tonight to name all of those. But there are some. But there are many, many, many more who are languishing uh, in the prisons. And while the United States government smacks the fingers of of those who uh, tried to overthrow it with two years and 18 years, you know, Imam Jamil El-Amin's languages in jail with a life plus 35 years with no possibility of parole. Jalil did 49 years. We're fighting for Brother Kamal Siddiqui. So there are many, many folks who are deserving of your time and your energy to join political prisoner campaigns to free them, join the Jericho movement, uh, the counterintelligence, exposed counterintelligence program and beyond uh, coalition. We're working together with all of them. Another objective, of course, was to break international solidarity that was built in the 1960s and, and earlier. And that was a clear objective to break our movement off from those around the world who would support us and make us think that the only way that we can struggle is within the United States Constitution. And of course, uh, Another objective was to destroy the leadership of the Black Liberation Movement, Indigenous Peoples Movements, the Chicano Movements, and create disruptions within their organizations. And so it wasn't just picking off one or two or three or four uh, people, Dr. King, or harassing, uh, um, you know, entertainers, but it was about destroying organization. And so if you see strange arguments popping up, you know, double check what's happening within your organization, because they're still functioning. In 2017, the FBI came out with the Black identity extremists. And even last year, this past year, we've heard of the FBI using uh, agent provocateur uh, and an informant going in in the Midwest and preying on naive organizers, new organizers who didn't understand uh, what was going on. And lastly, before we get to our next speakers, we want to also thank Project South. We are partnering partnering with Project South because on July 6th, and tech folks help me out here, 
uh, July 6th, it will be another webinar that will be doing education again around the Foreign Agents Registration Act about COINTELPRO, about COP City, but also tying in the struggle in Palestine and the way in which the United States government has been trying to destroy any possibility of support uh, for the Palestinian people and their right to return. So their program, their webinar, When Movements Rise, State Repression Escalates from Cop City to Palestine, will be Thursday, July 6th. It'll be at 12 noon on your lunch hour and uh, 9 a.m. for breakfast on folks on the West Coast. So I'd like to uh, move on. And uh, the next voices that you next speakers will be, first it will be Sister Mwesi Nidamu Odom. She's a member of the African People's Socialist Party and currently serves as the chair of the Hands Off Uhuru, Hands Off Africa counteroffensive. But they've uh, provided a video and we're going to start off with that. And then immediately after that video, you will hear Mwesi. And then after that, we will have a video on Cop City and, uh, and, and catching folks up on where that struggle is and how folks may join. If the CSCI has a federal warrant for this address, keep your hands up and follow orders. This is the FBI. We have a warrant. They handcuffed me and my wife out here. They wanted me to sit on the curb uh, while they were carrying this out. Uh, something that I refused to do. They wanted my wife to sit on the curb out here that she refused to do. As I was coming out, this big old drone met me. The only revolutionary organization that's done something here on the ground practically for African people is the one that's come under attack. Institution that offers a community radio station, a newspaper, a commercial kitchen, an Aquabo Hall rental space, and community office for our organizers. That was the building that has come under attack.
will build a movement of white people that says, hands yes. off the yes. Uluru yes. movement. They see in the African People's Socialist Party a vanguard for the struggle for the liberation of our people. They see that because not just what we do here in the United States, but because we had the temerity to do like Garvey, to do like Malcolm X, and take the struggle of black people around the world. Uhuru, sister, uh, Shafia, and everyone, I just want to appreciate this opportunity to be here to present, and I will be expeditious with um, my presentation because I do want to um, really address what has been raised um, and asked of me on today. So again, as it's been stated, my name is Mwazi Odom, and I'm a member of the African People's Socialist Party and the chairperson of the Hands Off Uhuru, Hands Off Africa Defense Campaign. And what you just saw was a video with footage from the um, raids on July 29th, 2022, which is what birthed this campaign, which is building international solidarity and solidarity from the people who, um, as we understand, are um, fighting for the basic rights, um, which has been expressed on today. So I just wanted to open that up. Um, but I, I was asked to talk about something that I think is important to talk about because Sister Shafia and Sister Rukia mentioned around talking about COINTELPRO and the counterinsurgency. And what you have is a um, is a repressive system against when the people are, you know, when there is an insurgency arising up against the people or the people are fighting back. And under the guise of the Foreign Agent um, Registration Act, and I appreciate your presentation, uh, Julie, we have to look at the work that the African People's Socialist Party has been doing to better understand this. So for over, um, you know, 51 years, over half a century, the, you know, total, the objective for the total liberation and unification of Africa and African people everywhere has been the aim of the African People's Socialist Party, who has organized throughout the world, um, in Jamaica, you know, well, in the Caribbean, in, you know, in Europe, all throughout Africa, South, you know, South Africa, Sierra Leone, Liberia, and other places. And the founder, um, Chairman Omalia Shetela, um, who is the founder of the African People's Socialist Party and the main target for these attacks on July 29th, also built the African Socialist International, which is how the African People's Socialist Party is expressed throughout the world. And, you know, with the clean understanding that African people are colonized, that we do not have power, and that everywhere that you look around the world, African people are suffering. And this is why we suffer from, as it's characterized, state oppression or all these other isms. We understand that this is a, um, a result of colonialism and um, and the state repression when we organize to try to fight back and to break free. And so how the party has um, has expressed this is it's, it's work through this political theory called African internationalism. And African internationalism helps, um, you know, because it is a theory of, of, of practice, we understand the importance of building power and dual and contending power. So with over 50 um, economic institutions that you can see throughout the work of the African People's Socialist Party, such as the Black Power Blueprint, um, which is located in North St. Louis. And I invite everybody to go with the Uhura House, where there's a community garden, farmers markets, basketball courts, fourplex, um, apartment, housing, Africans um, coming out of the colonial prison system, 
a doula training pro um, program, an African Women's Health Center, uh, GECO Kitchen, so that the community can come and cook. Philadelphia, um, we have the Uhura Furniture Store, which came following the, um, you know, move bombing. Um, and, you know, that's been there since the 1990s, the One Africa, One Nation Marketplace. Um, and in Oakland, also Uhura House. And I want to, you know, say this because it's important to understand that the many ways in which um, we uh, continue to build power as a people um, through organization, these are the institutions that are clear to the state and negating the power of the state um, as well. Um, and in that video, you saw St. St. Louis, which I just mentioned, but in St. St. Petersburg, which is also where these attacks happen, there's a radio station there. We have a Uhura House and the Burning Spear newspaper, which is the ideological vehicle of the African People's Socialist Party published since 1968. And also to understand the history of the fight on the question of reparations in 1982, where the African People's Socialist Party led and built the International Tribunal on Reparations to African People in Brooklyn, New York. And just numerous looking at um, Omalia Shetela, the founder of the African People's Socialist Party, but what it has expressed, numerous books and, you know, information and presentations from Oxford to uh, Huelva, Spain at the Congress in in Welva, Spain and throughout the world. And, and to say that, you know, using these as examples, right, of the state saying that we are pursuing foreign interests. And if this is what you call foreign interests, then we have to call it what it is and understand that uh, these are all of, as we say, another tool to target movements for justice and power. But when you are oppressed, how else are you going to, to get free of this system? And so I, I think it's really important that we continue to center how we wage this fight back against the state, which is what our campaign and the people intend to do. So we understand that the state came at these seven properties in North St. Louis. And what you didn't see in that video was that there was assault rifles, you know, bouncing off of the chairman's chest. They used drones and flashbang grenades, as we said, and also went through and seized these territories for up to over six hours in some locations, taking phones, com computers, and archives, many of which has not been returned. And looking also at just the nature um, of the case, which, you know, again, there will be questions later on. So I will be more than happy to, you know, discuss what is uh, within the limits to to discuss. But right now, where we are currently is following that attack for members of the um, movement, um, Omalia Shetela and um, Akile Anayi, who is a leading member in the African People's Socialist Party, as well as uh, Penny Hess, who is the chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee, and uh, Jesse Neville, who is a member um, of the of the um, the Uhura Solidarity Movement, were all named as quote unquote unindicted co-conspirators. And what we have now is them, you know, whittling this down to three members of the movement. Chairman Amalia Shetela, Penny Hess, and Jesse Neville as what the three who have been indicted on April 18th of this past year. And, you know, it's important to explain that what we have here is we understand chairman as the main target, but also this fracturing that is happening within the uh, state itself, where you have two white people, because it must be stated that in 1976, um, the African People's Socialist Party also created uh, the African People's Solidarity Committee, which is an organization of white people who work under the leadership of the African working class. And this is important because one of the main goals of the African People's Socialist Party was to complete the revolution of the 1960s. So as we talk 
talk here about, you know, we look at the 1930s, right, you know, even, but even as we understand what was happening around the world in the 60s, it was a fight against colonialism. And so to complete that project of the 1960s, the APSP has built an organization of white people to go, as you can say, behind enemy lines. So one of the things I think that we can leave this at is to look at what are the implications of where we are right now, especially the African liberation uh, movement, which was led by the Vanguard uh, Guard Party, which is the African People's Socialist Party, understands that these attacks are, as we say, touch one, touch all. When they touch one of us, they touch all of us. And we are calling on people to get involved and to join this campaign under the um, banner of Hands Off Uhuru, Hands Off Africa. Uh, um, Uhuru means freedom, that these attacks on the African People's Socialist party is an attack on all people. And we understand it's an attack on Africa and Africans right to organize. And we must be able to fight, um, you know, really wage this fight back for our freedom and win the um, solidarity of other anti-colonial, anti-imperialist organizations who want to fight against war and, you know, the right for freedom of speech and assembly. So I would uh, stop, just uh, close by expressing what the people can do. So you can go to handsoffuhuru.org. That's U-H-U-R-U.org and uh, join the campaign. We have a legal defense fund. We have to raise a 277,500 minimum. That is a benchmark goal to cover the legal fees for this uh, fight back. And we are like 81% close to our goal. So we want to appreciate people. You can donate by going to handsoffuhuru.org slash donate. So I will stop there, but thank you. And we say hands off Uhuru, hands off Africa. Uhuru. Uhuru, sister. Uhuru. Free to land. Free to land, free to land. Uhuru, self-determination. We're going to move now to uh, another struggle that is going on. And we want to really thank uh, everyone who's been really working together as a team on providing information of these struggles that are going on around the country. We're going to show video now. Uh, the center point of the video is Brother Kamal Franklin with the Community Movement Builders, who's been an organization key in the struggle of Cop City. He will get into more detail about that. But Cop City is planned as the largest police training facility in the country, and it is widely opposed. A police SWAT team, guns drawn, raided the Atlanta Solidarity Fund on Wednesday and arrested three people who'd been raising money to bail out protesters opposed to the construction of a massive police training facility known as Cop City. Marlon Kautz, Adele McLean, and Savannah Patterson were charged with one count each of money laundering and charity fraud. Warrants allege the three were, quote, misleading contributors to fund the actions in part of Defend the Atlanta Forest, a group classified by the United States Department of Homeland Security as domestic violent extremists. As proof of money laundering, the warrants cite reimbursements from April 2021 to March of this year that total less than $7,000 and were for forest cleanup, totes, COVID rapid tests, media and yard signs. The Atlanta Solidarity Fund issued a statement that it's existed for seven years, quote, with the sole purpose of providing resources to protesters experiencing repression. To be clear, none of the arrested cop city activists have been designated as domestic violent extremists, nor have they been convicted, just charged. In March, 
Prosecutors charged 23 forest defenders with domestic terrorism after clashes between police and protesters less than two months after Atlanta police shot dead Manuel Tortuguita Terán, a 26-year-old environmental activist. An autopsy concluded they were sitting with their hands raised up in front of their body when police shot them 57 times. In response to the arrest Wednesday, the National Lawyers Guild issued a statement, quote, in firm solidarity with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund and all of the Stop Cop City activists unjustly targeted by law enforcement, unquote. They noted, quote, bail funds exist to protect people's right to dissent. They're necessary, legally sound resources that help people more safely access their constitutionally protected rights to speech and assembly by lowering the risks of financial ruin or indefinite jail time, unquote. For an update, we go to Atlanta to speak with Kamau Franklin, founder of the organization Community Movement Builders. Kamau, welcome back to Democracy Now! I mean, can you lay out what happened? I, as we look at this image of a SWAT team moving in, guns drawn, um, charging uh, this group, ultimately, um, the authorities, with charity fraud, certainly someone like George Santos, who was just recently arrested, uh, there wasn't a SWAT team that moved in on him. Uh, can you talk about what took place? Sure. Thanks for having me. So, what took place was an escalation by the authorities, the state of Georgia, the city of Atlanta, on the infrastructure of the movement. Uh, so, approximately at 9 a.m. on Wednesday, uh, the uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, along with SWAT teams, there's reports that there were personnel from Homeland Security there, uh, decided to, to, to back a truck up in a residential neighborhood, an armored vehicle with armored police personnel, SWAT teams, uh, to basically go in, guns drawn, as you stated, uh, to arrest people on what essentially is, would be considered a white-collar crime and or a financial crime in terms of what the charges would be. But this use of, of violent force against the Atlanta Solidarity Fund really shows that the real intent has nothing to do uh, with, uh, with any criminality, uh, which has never taken place with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. But this is really another way of destroying and attacking the infrastructure of organizing and movement, particularly against those who have been organizing against Cop City. Because we understand that this, this cop city is not just for training. The officer that killed uh, Rashad Brooks in Atlanta had over 2,000 hours of training. This is not about the training of police. This is about the militarization of police, the over-policing of black communities, and the attacking of movements and organizations that oppose police violence. This is an extension of that, and that's why we are against Cop City, because we know this is not a, about training. This is about police militarization and the over-policing of black communities. Thank you. A brief update since that video was made uh, on Democracy Now!, the Atlanta City Council, after more than, I think it was 10 hours of testimony, where the community kept the City Council uh, there until 5.30 in the morning, voicing its opposition to Cop City. The City Council voted 11 to 4 in favor of spending the money for, for Cop City. Opposition organizers held a press conference and they've announced the next step that even though 
the city council had that vote, then they will not be have the last say. And what they're going to do is they announced that they're going to gather petitions for a referendum so that a vote can be taken by registered all of the registered voters in Atlanta on whether or not to put that, uh, they have 60 days uh, to get 75,000 signatures in order to put the referendum on the ballot of whether or not to allow the city to build Cop City or to pay for Cop City. So the step is, the first thing is the 60 days to collect petition signatures. They have to be in city of Atlanta registered voters. And we are going to, I'm going to read it, the, the URL, and we wish to stand with the folks who are opposing Cop City and calling for, they're going to need as many volunteers as possible to help get the 75,000 signatures. Actually, they were saying on, on the news today it was 70,000. So you figure that they've got to get at least 80,000 signatures. They have 60 days to do it, which means we need an army of folks out there to help collect those signatures. If the referendum is approved, now unfortunately they have to go to the city council, but if the referendum is approved, then it will go on the ballot this November 7th. And then there will be the campaigning, of course, between the time of the 60 days and November 7th of getting folks out to vote against Cop City. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. For more information about the movements discussed by Exposed COINTELPRO, go to handsoffuhuru.org, stopcopcitysolidarity.org, and the Exposed COINTELPRO and Beyond Coalition on YouTube. You can contact us, work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. You can also listen to the podcast of the same show. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter or patreon.com at forward slash onthegroundshow. Our theme music for the show is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.